Hello and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. I don't know what time you're listening to this. I don't know what listening device you are using, and I don't know where you are geographically. But the point is, this is Sports in the Waiting Room, and I am your host, Chris Russo. Thank you so much for, I can't really say tuning in necessarily, again, because it is a podcast. It's not a radio program. This is not going out live. But thank you for listening, I suppose is the best way to put it, and using your listening device. So much to discuss this week, a very stacked NHL trade deadline, but a few things to discuss regarding the NFL and a couple of very significant releases. We start with Taylor Luan, who the Titans released after nine years with the organization. The Michigan alum had been the team's starting left tackle for the last eight years, dating back to 2015. Started with the team in 2014 as their number 11 overall pick. Made the Pro Bowl three times, as a matter of fact, three times in a row from 2016 through 2018. He is apparently considering retirement. He he knew this was coming in advance, that he would be released. He suffered from a couple of serious injuries in the last couple of years. He tore his ACL in 2020 and was lost for most of this year with a knee injury. He has been so crucial to the Titans' success because that is a very run-heavy team, although... Of course, you know, when Ryan Tannehill was especially strong with the organization, they were a dominant play-action passing team, especially on third down. And so Luan was crucial that this is a team that has thrived so much under, well, pretty much with Derrick Henry in the backfield. And Taylor Luan is a big part of that. They do like to run that sometimes to the left side. He's been a premier blocker for him, helped them reach the AFC Championship game in 2019. They've been a very, very strong team within the conference. But just a rough last year or so, uh, Luan is, you know, I talk a lot about how how important it is where you're coming from or, or where your family is now to some of these athletes. I know money, especially for some people who are much more cynical, money is a predominant factor. But, you know, for, for Taylor Luan, a guy who was apparently born in Sacramento, went to high school in Arizona, married a couple of kids in Nashville currently. Again, this is a business, but you're, but you're ultimately uprooting people's lives when you, you make a decision like this. And so this should be, if he's going to stick around, it'll probably be made, at least in part, due to geography. So let's say he goes to play for the Arizona Cardinals. That would be a good fit. That would be a very good fit because it's a team that really has regressed since last year. I think we knew already that Kyler Murray did not have a great offensive line in front of him. That's kind of, that's necessitated his scrambling ability. That's further necessitated his scrambling ability. And it's only gotten him more hurt. Now, again, Luan is a guy who is, what, about 31 now, I believe. But still, it would be a great it would be a great gamble for Arizona, I think, to make that selection. I don't, I don't necessarily think Luan's career is over. He's a fine player and has been crucial to the Titans' success. Some team could pick him up. Look, look at the Rams at the end. Look at the Rams with Andrew Whitworth at the end of his career. Making that making that move, a guy who is much older than who is much older then than Taylor Luan is now. 
And so it's, I don't think his career is done, but if he does call it quits, he's had a fine, fine career in Tennessee. Speaking of the Rams, actually, the Rams have actually released Bobby Wagner after just one season with the Rams. He played one year with them after 10 years in Seattle. This is, I would imagine it's even tougher for Wagner because he is a native of Los Angeles, or at least the Los Angeles area, went to high school in Ontario, about 30-some-odd miles east, made second-team All-Pro this season. He had a strong year. He was down in terms of tackles, but made second-team All-Pro this year. He recorded a career-high six sacks, and he started every game out of 17 total. First time he'd ever played 17 games in a season. The, the Rams were obviously just bad this year. That's I would say that's due in part to the loss of Odell Beckham Jr., primarily due to injury. Also, the, the loss of Matt Stafford due to injury, but it was a difficult year for the Rams, but it doesn't really have to do with Bobby Wagner. Wagner had a fine year, and I would imagine this is more budget-based. And Wagner, I would not say, is declining the way Luan is. And they're about, they might they might be exactly the same age, actually. But Wagner is clearly still at a high level of play. And so I would imagine, so I, mean, I haven't heard anything about him possibly retiring. Again, we talk about Los Angeles, him being from Los Angeles. A signing with the Chargers would be, would be huge for a team that's expected to do so much more. Again, the Chiefs will be back. The Chiefs, you know, the Chiefs traded away Tyreek Hill and still won the Super Bowl this year, but the Chargers are still a team that will make some noise in the AFC West, a very loaded AFC West. Well, it depends on what Denver does this offseason. It depends what the Raiders do this offseason after letting go of Derek Carr. But it would be quite a landing spot and a, and one that would make a lot of sense. But Bobby Wagner is a guy who is, I think, definitely in a better spot than Luan is. I think it also factors in, I don't think it's a coincidence that Bobby Wagner is a linebacker and Taylor Luan is a left tackle. Taylor Luan plays on the line of scrimmage. Bobby Wagner doesn't necessarily play on the line of scrimmage. He's not really an edge rusher. And so if you're a linebacker, you're playing a little further away from contact. And I think that's that helps a little bit when it comes to management, kind of, kind of rest management, load management, when you just have less impact on your body. But Wagner is a really good player, and I can only imagine somebody is going to sign him this offseason and will benefit from his abilities. Someone who did not have the best ability this year and, and a team that did not benefit from or didn't benefit from whatever ability was not there. That's the Commanders, and that's Carson Wentz. The Commanders cut Carson Wentz after just one season with the organization, after a year in Indianapolis, and then a few years before that in Philadelphia. This year he played eight games and went two and five, did not get the did not get the decision in that eighth game, went two and five for Washington, completed 62.3% of his passes in those eight games, had 1,755 yards, which 
is not terrible, especially considering the run game for that organization. That's what it's 220 yards a game, roughly. That's not that's not bad, but his touchdown to interception ratio not great. 11 to nine, 11 TDs to nine picks. Also fumbled. Well, he fumbled. He turned over the ball once with fumbles, but he fumbled six times in total. Washington recovered five of them, but still, that's not a good sign for a team that's been pretty pretty strong at the line of scrimmage. I think it's fair to say, and a Washington team that is capable of a lot more, and clearly they can do a lot more with Taylor Heineke, a quarterback, I believe, or they may go to, it looks like Sam Howell, I guess, will get the opportunity. We still have a lot of time before we even get to the preseason, or before we even get to to training camp, but it's a commander's team that is built very well at a lot of different Positions built very well at the receiver position, built very well at running back, built very well in terms of their front four. But the quarterback position has been an issue for them, and it, it makes a lot of sense actually because Washington historically, at least in the Super Bowl era, or at the very least in the last thirty-five years or so, has not been a great quarterback team necessarily. In that you know they're. Two big Hall of Fame quarterbacks all time are probably Sammy Baugh, who played in a very early era of football, won a couple of championships, I believe, was also a kicker. That's how long ago this really was. And Sonny Jurgensen, who split split off a little bit of time in Philadelphia as well, but ultimately did not win a championship in Washington, even though he was you know one of the best slingers of the football of his era. But you think about it, since then. You know, they had Jurgensen was hurt for the Super Bowl against the eventual world champion Dolphins. Billy Kilmer was in at quarterback. And then even Joe Theismann, who you could still consider for the Hall of Fame, but played, what, 12 years, I believe, was there for two Super Bowl teams, one Super Bowl champion team, one NFC championship team. But the three Super Bowls they've won have been with three different quarterbacks. And the latter two have been with journeyman quarterbacks. Doug Williams, and Mark Rippon. And they were much more built around a an all-time great receiving core of Art Monk, Gary Clark, and Ricky Sanders. And, you know, in addition, guys like, at first, John Riggins with Joe Theismann, but then Timmy Smith in the backfield, built much more on their offensive line. The quarterback wasn't the key focus. It was, you can kind of go, you can kind of rotate. But since, especially since Dan Snyder has taken over, it's a team that, has been at times rather weak at the quarterback position. And even when they've had strong quarterbacks, they've been decimated either by injury or perhaps by just not a great supporting cast. Because Kirk Cousins is a pretty good quarterback and he you know, ha- has done some things in Minnesota. He's, he's been better in Minnesota than he was in Washington, but he was still a very strong quarterback with the now commanders. And they didn't really take advantage of that. Robert Griffin III looked like an unbelievable candidate. It looked like he was going to be maybe the future of the game his rookie year, but ultimately got hurt. His, his style of play, I don't think, necessarily helped, but it just went down the drain. And so the last couple of years, Washington has been a team, essentially, with the possible exception of Taylor Heineke, who is a, a solution, but he's not a long-term solution necessarily, 
Washington has been a great team without a quarterback. And so Wentz is kind of the epitome of that. Moving a little further south, we speak of the Atlanta Falcons, who released their quarterback, Marcus Mariota. Mariota was the starter for much of the year. I think we all knew he was going to be kind of a gap quarterback anyway, but ultimately lost his starting job down the stretch to Desmond Ritter out of Cincinnati, who was, I believe, a second-round pick for the Falcons last year. Mariota was not, I think he exceeded my expectations a little bit, especially considering he was not the starting starting quarterback for the Raiders. He had been, of course, for Tennessee, but he was not the starting quarterback for the Raiders. Went 5-8 and eight in 13 games played. Ritter played the other four. Completed 61.3% of his passes. He had a stronger year than Wentz, I would argue. Again, he was able to play more, but he also earned the the opportunity to play more. 2,219 passing yards in 13 games. That's under 200. His touchdown-to-interception ratio was, was a bit better. 15 touchdowns to 9 picks. Uh, Wentz, 11 touchdowns to 9 picks. Mariota set career highs, actually. That's probably the, more the focus of the offense. They, they paid more attention to his run game. But he ultimately set career highs with 85 carries and 438 rushing yards. He also had four rushing touchdowns this season. Unfortunately for him, though, he did fumble eight times, lost three of them. But the turnover battle, I would say the touchdown-to-interception ratio and probably the touchdown-to-turnover ratio a lot better for Mariota. The Falcons The Falcons were rather competitive this year. They ultimately finished 7-10 and in a lackluster... NFC South, they very well could have won. That the Bucks won at eight and nine, but Mariota did a decent job. I think it makes a lot of sense that they cut him, but I thought he did a bigger, better, a better job than I would have expected. And maybe he'll catch on, not necessarily as a starter, but he'll still be he could still be a backup in a lot of places, or could be kind of what people wanted Tim Tebow to be for a little while which is just that that additional rushing quarterback, kind of a gadget play guy, kind of what Taysom Hill is. I, I think that suits him better. But he was... He exceeded my expectations this year, I will say. So moving on, it has been a very busy trade deadline this year in the NHL. I'm going to try to string this along, not necessarily in terms of not necessarily chronologically, but try to tie in a couple of trades, almost do it by team practically. And so I'll start with the Washington Capitals who have traded Dmitry Orlov, who has already scored his first goal with the Bruins, and Garnet Hathaway. And in case you haven't guessed by now, he's been traded to the Bruins. Both of those guys go into Boston in a three-team deal that also involves the Minnesota Wild. The Bruins also acquire Minnesota's prospect Andrei Svetlakov, not Andrei Svechnikov, if, if that's what you were thinking. The Capitals also received Craig Smith, a fine you know, veteran forward, good on the draw. And they will also get a first rounder this year, a third rounder next year, and a fourth rounder in 2025. The Wild get Boston's fifth rounder this year. The Caps retain half of Orlov's salary, and the Wild pay 25%. This brings to an end 
Orlov's, I believe, 12-year career in Washington. I was rather surprised to see that he had played that long with this organization, but he's a very skilled offensive defenseman who was crucial for them when they won the Stanley Cup in 2018, has been a key piece for them, kind of an underrated piece of their success. Hathaway is a guy who will fit in perfectly in Boston because he's a guy who really likes to stir the pot and a guy who can really scrap. He's a good player as well, in addition to that. A good four that will provide a lot of depth for them. The Capitals, you know, it looks like the Capitals are, I guess, are sellers, but they're still not that far out. I mean, they're, as I, as I record this, they're five points back of Pittsburgh for the second wild card, although the Pens have two games in hand. They're six points back of the Islanders for the first wild card with two games in hand on the Islanders. So don't necessarily rule out the Caps, but it looks like they are sellers. I mean, Craig Smith is a good depth piece, but it, it looks like they'll be, I guess, just calling it a year. They do also trade Marcus Johansson, another guy, key, key member of the cup-winning team, to the Wild for a third rounder in 2024. The Caps also trade Eric Gustafson and a first-round pick to the Toronto Maple Leafs, who also made a splash this this trade deadline. We'll talk about that a little more. For Rasmus Sandin, Gustafson on the year in 61 games, 7 goals, 31 assists, 38 points to this point. And Sandin, more of a defensive defenseman, a plus 10 this season, 20 points in 52 games for the Caps. The Leafs, one of the better defensive teams, believe it or not, in the league right now, having let up a little over two and a half goals a game, 158. That's second best in their division behind only the best team in the NHL, the Boston Bruins. They've been much stronger defensively than Tampa Bay. They've been stronger defensively than any of the wildcard teams and better than the Rangers. Pretty close with New Jersey, not far behind Carolina. And so they've been one of the better defensive teams in the Eastern Conference, even though that was one of their biggest struggles. And so perhaps getting an offensive-minded defenseman is not a terrible idea. It's it's the back end that has always been the concern for the Leafs, at least in the last few years where they really emerged with Matthews and Tavares, Mitch Marner, and, the, and that whole core, that whole group of guys. The Caps, meanwhile, have just a plus one on the year. They've been a, a weaker, on the weaker end defensively, let up. Over three goals a game, 187 goals allowed in 62 games, and so a guy like Sandine could be a nice pickup for whatever they are able to do down the stretch. The Caps, in addition, there's one more thing to mention. The Caps do trade Lars Eller, who scored the Stanley Cup winning goal for Washington back in 2018 in Las Vegas. They trade him to the defending Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche in exchange for a second-round pick in 2025, the Avalanche right now, as I record this, have 73 points. They are third in the Central Division, but just two points behind the Dallas Stars with two games in hand. They have the second-best points percentage of any team in the conference behind only the Vegas Golden Knights, who are three points better, though Colorado has two games in hand on them. And again, the Avs also still... You know, injury prone right now, just waiting on 
the return of Gabe Landeskog, and then Kale McCarr has gone down, and so it's a, a testy time for Colorado, but they are putting, again, a lot of faith in this team to win again and again, and to bring in a guy who has been crucial to Washington's success, and a guy who's also crucial to Montreal's success in Lars Eller. The Maple Leafs, as we mentioned, making a splash. They also acquire Luke Shen from Vancouver in exchange for a third-round pick. The Canucks, of course, with a lackluster year. They are 19 points out of the second wild card. That wild card race in the West is much more spread out. And at this point, in terms of really competitive hockey, probably limited to only Calgary and Nashville in terms of the outside looking in with Edmonton and Winnipeg right there in those one and two spots. Shen, very good ve- very good veteran defensive defenseman, not bad on the PK either, has the ability to score, to work well as offensively and help the Lightning win the Stanley Cup each of the last, well, the last two years before last year was a key acquisition for them down the stretch and a, a guy who is a great veteran presence, a guy who has won, and that's one of the biggest things the Leafs can get and it's a guy who has won the Stanley Cup not only once, but multiple times before, an excellent veteran defenseman. The Leafs do free up their roster a little bit, open up their roster a little bit by trading trading Pierre Engvall to the Islanders in exchange for a third-round pick next year, so they do get a middle-to-high pick in return. The Islanders still investing in their future. They are the number one wild card at this point. Again, a point ahead of Pittsburgh for the first wild card, though the Pens do have four games in hand. They are four points ahead of Buffalo for the next wild card. The Sabres have five games in hand. And so the Islanders really have to, will have to slow down in terms of their schedule. Their schedule will space out a little bit down the stretch so the rest of these teams can catch up. Most of these teams are at about 59, 60, 61 games played, maybe 62. The Islanders are at, game, at 64 games played to this point. They trail the Rangers by 7 points for third in the Metropolitan. They trail the Devils by 13, trail Carolina by 16. So the wild card seems like it should be their spot, albeit there is a lot of time left, 18 games for them, to catch the Rangers first and foremost. Maybe not so likely the Devils or the Hurricanes, but the Islanders still in a promising spot and a team that could be very dangerous. Their average on the road, much better uh, much better on the island, but still a very strong, defensive-minded team, and, and that Bo Horvat pickup was huge, so Engvall will be a significant depth piece. Nino Niederreiter traded by the Predators, the Nashville Predators, another team who did a lot of selling, although they they somehow did strengthen their team a bit, but they did a lot of selling here at the deadline, and Nino Niederreiter was one of those pieces, traded from the Predators to the Jets in exchange for a second-round pick, not an awful return. He has scored 18 goals for the Predators this season. It's very interesting, though, because Nashville is eight points back of Winnipeg, for that second wild card, though they do have three games in hand. So the- theoretically, they could be as few as two points back of the Winnipeg Jets. So it's interesting to see that move made, but it's a bit of a forfeiture by the Preds. 
who, again, it's the Predators in Calgary that are only really that close to Winnipeg. The Blues are the next best team. They're 15 points out. And the Blues were also sellers at this deadline. We'll talk about that a little more. But Nino Ryder, again, scored that huge goal for the Wild in Game 7 against Colorado back in 2012 in the first round. Guy with some playoff experience. And he's a guy who's a sniper. Just a good player. So that's a good pickup for the Jets. This all, you know, there are a couple more deals. But in, in the midst of that, Predators GM David Poyle has announced his retirement after 24 years with the Predators. He has been their only general manager. Since their inception in 1999, he will be replaced rather appropriately. His, he will be succeeded by former Predators head coach Barry Trotz, who is perhaps and likely the best coach in the history of the organization, despite the fact that Peter Laviolette was the one who was there who took them to the Stanley Cup final. Barry Trotz has the bulk of his success with the Predators, despite the fact he later went on to win the Cup in Washington, had great success with the Islanders, taking them to the conference final in consecutive years. Barry Trotz will be recognized most for his work with the Nashville Predators. And so this is a rather fitting send-off. It's a shame to see that Poyle will be leaving because he has done so much for the organization, but it is a fitting send-off and a fitting successor especially with Trotz. There, there were rumors maybe he would become the Leafs head coach. You know, a, a guy who should, I, I think, should be at least publicly more highly coveted as a coach in this league since his firing by the Islanders. But a, a credit to him as he will, he'll, he'll probably do a, a very good job, I would imagine. He works, he's a, he's a good player's coach. Guys had a lot of success, and I think it should translate to the front office. As for Poyle's impact, no, he never won the Stanley Cup, and he is in a mid-market. He's in the he's in the South, but this is a guy who deserves a ton of credit for transforming not only this organization but this league. First off, from an actual hockey standpoint, from an actual wins and losses standpoint. This is a team that has been very competitive for the last 15, 16 years in particular. And he has been responsible for every player they have picked up, be it you know, going back to David Legwand or Pecorine, Roman Yossi, Philip Forsberg, Colton Sissons, P.K. Subban, Matthias Ekholm, uh, as we will mention in a moment. A number of these fine players that that's all that's all David Poyle's doing. And this is a team that had to compete with the Red Wings and with the Blackhawks in their years of, of great success. Had to compete with St. Louis and to an extent the, the Kings and San Jose, Anaheim, even Dallas, but was still a very competitive team in the Western Conference and as a as essentially the 16 seed came within frankly came within one or two very questionable calls of hoisting the Stanley Cup in 2017 against the Pittsburgh Penguins I always talk about the uh, Forsberg and, and Colton Sissons and the, the play that was blown dead in game six that really killed them not to mention you know 
Sidney Crosby slamming P.K. Subban's head into the ice. But it, it was a Nashville Predators team that was, for that area, for the Mid-South, a pleasant surprise. And, you know what, I, I can say, again, I, I mentioned this before, I've got family in Memphis. I don't know really how big they are in Memphis, but I can tell you that the Predators are a great representative of the Mid-South. And I can tell you that hockey, from a youth standpoint, has developed far more in Tennessee. In addition, you know, this was almost concurrently with the Hurricanes and, and their runs in the last 25 years or so. In addition to Tampa and Florida. Tampa, obviously, more successful. But Tampa, Dallas, Carolina, even Washington, D.C. is considered the South. And to some extent, actually, St. Louis even, and the Southwest, but Arizona, David Poyle has been the epitome of the foundation of hockey in the southern United States over the last 25, 30 years. Even going back as far as, if you count Washington, as, as far as, you know, maybe close to a half century. And so he's built an entire generation of hockey players. He's built generations, several generations over and over that will grow to appreciate this game even when the climate is not necessarily built for it from a natural standpoint. So a credit to him. He, he will, I can only imagine he's eventually going to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame and he has left Nashville and the state of Tennessee far better than it was when he got there. At least from a, from a hockey and a community standpoint. The Predators, in addition, also traded, as I mentioned, Matthias Ekholm after 12 years with the organization to the Oilers in exchange for Tyson Berry. Not necessarily a lateral or a seller's move on either side, really. The Predators also receive forward prospect Reed Schaefer, a first-rounder this year and a fourth-rounder next year, while the Oilers get a sixth-rounder next season. Poyle was making some rather pointed comments in that he mentioned, I'll paraphrase, but he pretty much said Roman Yossi, who is probably the best Predator defenseman ever and maybe the best player in the history of the organization, is so good, but really he's the only Nashville defenseman producing offense right now. And so that was that was a big shot. Matias Ekholm, very good defenseman, but he's a stay-at-home guy. Tyson Barry is a guy who has had a knack for being a very offensive-minded defenseman, had that in Colorado, has had that in Edmonton. And so that's something Nashville needs. And in you know, con conversely, the Oilers need someone on the back end, like Matias Ekholm. And so it's a perfect complement, I think. And the picks are probably pretty fair considering age considering numbers and a lot of different factors. Preds made one more trade. They traded Tanner Janot to the Lightning for Cal Foote and five picks. Cal Foote, son of Adam Foote, the former Avalanche defenseman, has been a good, more so stay-at-home defenseman. And, you know, just not, just not a bad deal necessarily for either team. The Lightning have... Not been able to hold on to everybody the last couple of years. They've they've broken down a little bit, but Janot is the kind of guy 
who could perhaps have the impact. They're almost trying to catch, pun intended, lightning in a bottle the way they did with Nick Paul in the playoffs last year, or the way they did with, I mean, I mean, they've had guys like Yanni Gord who they've lost, or Andre Palat who made such a significant impact, but they've brought in guys on the third and fourth line who've, who have just completely replenished the the depth within the organization, and, and Janot could be a good one. Cal Foote is a guy who could probably bring some of the facets of Ekholm's game, but just uh, just from a, a younger perspective, I would say. The Oilers also trade Jesse Pugliarvi to Carolina in exchange for forward pro- prospect Patrick Pristola. Please forgive me. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's a forward prospect, a, a forward prospect from Finland, who can impact the Oilers' future. Again, the Oilers are still a fairly young team, but uh, they've they've made some deals that have aided them. They're the first wild card right now. Again, tied with Winnipeg for that first wild card spot. Same amount of games played, same amount of points. Winnipeg has three more wins but Edmonton with the better head-to-head record. Edmonton also tied with Seattle in terms of points, though Seattle is a game in hand. Four back of the Kings, four back of Vegas. Edmonton could still very well end up with the best record in the Western Conference, a conference conference that is kind of paled in comparison to the East, most notably the the Bruins, but I would say the, the top six in particular. Any of the top six teams in the Metropolitan would actually have more points than any team in the Western Conference. So it's almost like last year where you wonder, is the East so deep that everybody's just going to beat each other up and somebody on the West will benefit from not having to play as many games? Somebody like, some team like perhaps Colorado or perhaps Edmonton. Colorado, I don't think as good as they were last year particularly because of the loss of Kadri, and Georgiev's good, but might be a bit of a downgrade from Kemper. But someone, some team like Colorado or Edmonton that might just run over everybody en route to the final, and just, despite not being as good a team, as good a fundamental team necessarily, as someone like Tampa Bay, or the Rangers, or Carolina, Boston, Toronto, maybe even the Devils, maybe the Isles, I don't know, or Pittsburgh, whoever. Is it possible that that team from the West will just benefit from so much rest? Whereas the East, the Eastern teams will just be beating each other up. Moving on again, the, the St. Louis Blues, really sellers at this deadline, having already traded Ryan O'Reilly. They trade another key piece from that Stanley Cup team that's Ivan Barbashev. Sent to Vegas for prospect Zach Dean. Barbashev on the year. 59 games played at, at the time of the trade. 59 games played, 10 goals, 19 assists, 29 points. Again, key member of the Blues Stanley Cup winning team in 2019. Vegas sitting atop the Pacific Division and atop the Western Conference, as a matter of fact. The Devils make a rather significant move. Everybody had been talking about Timo Meyer. He does end up with the Devils. They pick up. They pick him up in addition to defenseman Scott Harrington. Santeri Hataka. Again, I hope I pronounced some of these all these correctly, but forward prospect Timur Abrigamov. Goalie prospect Zachary Edmund. 
That one I expect to, pro to pronounce correctly. And a 2024 fifth rounder. This was just kind of a mess, this whole thing. There was a lot to this trade, a lot more than I expected. The Sharks get Fabian Zetterland, Andreas Janssen, Shakir Mukamadulin. Again, I hope hope I get some of the, most of these right, but it's all it's a lot. And Nikita Okotuk, a conditional first rounder this year, and second and seventh rounders next year. So the Sharks, I think, get a fair return in terms of picks, and they get a few guys at the NHL level. Meyer, obviously, the centerpiece of this deal. Harrington is also very significant. But Zetterland and Janssen, I'd say more so Janssen, are two guys who have had good impact at the lower level for, at the on the lower lines for the Devils this year. Janssen, I would say more so. And you can start to build a little bit around a couple of those guys. And then the, the, the first rounder will be huge. The Devils are a team that could very well get knocked out in the first round, could make a deep run. We don't really know. They are maybe a bit ahead of schedule, but... A conditional first rounder is, again, conditional. So the Sharks, a team that has very much struggled this year, they are only a point better than the worst team, the two worst teams in the Western Conference, Chicago and Anaheim. A team that has just been lackluster in the last couple of years in, in losing their aging core. But the Devils do get a good a good pickup in Meyer. Guy who's played a few years in San Jose was there, I believe, when they reached the final in 2016. May have been very early on, very early on in his career, but still a fairly young guy. Harrington, a good defenseman who is stronger on the back end. The Devils have have needed some defensive improvement, or at least we said that going into this year. And just a couple of guys who can bring them back to the old form of. Solid defensive defenseman. On the other side of the Hudson, the and really on the other side of what right now would be a Devils-Rangers playoff matchup, the Rangers made really one significant move. They just kind of had to make one in order to make another one. So the, the initial move was that they traded Vitaly Kravtsov, who apparently had wanted, wanted to leave the organization. Again, they trade Vitaly Kravtsov to Vancouver, for Will Lockwood and a seventh rounder in 2026. Good deal for Vancouver. Kravtsov has a lot of upside as a strong player when he gets some playing time. But Vancouver, again, well on the outside looking in. That's a, that's a future move. This really was sort of an ult the ulterior motive here for the Rangers was freeing up space so they could acquire Patrick Kane doing so in exchange for a second rounder, a fourth rounder, and a defensive prospect with the Coyotes apparently helping facilitate the financial aspect. So the, the Blackhawks play, pay half the salary for this year. I believe his contract's up after this year. Blackhawks play half, pay half the salary. Coyotes pay a quarter. Rangers play, pay a quarter. And, I mean, this was a steal. I think I mean it could be could end up being a rental, but I think generally speaking, it's probably a steal for the Rangers. I don't know if they necessarily need him. I don't think if there is something the Rangers are missing, I don't think that's necessarily it. But Patrick Kane again is 
going to go down as, at the very least, he'll be on the Mount Rushmore of Chicago Blackhawks all time. If not, maybe number three or number two. Because he leaves the Blackhawks after rounding up 16 seasons, over 1,000 points. He is second all-time in points for the organization with 1,225. That's big because that's ahead of one Jonathan Taze, but also Bobby Hull, who I know split off a lot of his time with Winnipeg and the WHA, but that's a huge accomplishment, especially for an American. We'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. Second all-time in the Blackhawks history in assists, 779. Third with 446 goals behind only Hull and Stan Makita. Third in games played, fourth in power play goals, fourth in game-winning goals, and amongst Americans, fourth all-time in points, 1,225, fourth in assists, and seventh in goals. For my money, he is the best American-born forward of all time. I'm not going to say he is a complete player, necessarily. I, I, I'm not going to say he's a great defensive forward. I don't think he is Patrice Bergeron on, on that level, or even... You know, somebody, somebody, well, for example, like Jonathan Taze is such an incredible two-way forward. Even Sidney Crosby has finished as high as fourth in Selkie voting before. But Patrick Kane, for my money, is the best American-born forward of all time. And I could make, you can make the argument he's a top two Blackhawk all time. Three-time Stanley Cup champion. Conn Smythe Trophy winner, Hart Trophy winner as league MVP. Honestly, I could make a very good argument that he's the best player of his generation. And I know that's a generation that kind of coincides with Sidney Crosby and Alex Ovechkin, and frankly, I can make the argument for maybe one or, or a couple of goaltenders in there as well. It's a little, it's a little, bit, a little bit of a different conversation. It's a little difficult, but... He's, for my money, he's in the mix. And in addition, you know, he won the Hart Trophy once, but, and he won the Conn Smythe only once. However, he played a key role. He had probably the most, the biggest moment for the other two teams, the other two Stanley Cup winning teams. Scored the biggest goal of his career against the Flyers in overtime in Game 6 to win the Stanley Cup and then scored the clinching goal against the Lightning in Game 6 to give the Blackhawks their first Stanley Cup final victory in Chicago, I believe since 1939. And so he will go down. I, he, might, he, might be, he might be the best player ever for the Blackhawks not named Stan Mikita. And he is, though he was a native of upstate New York, in western New York, native of, I believe, the the Rochester area, if memory serves me correctly, for him to come to the Rangers is, is pretty big, and he wanted to be with the Rangers. And that's, you know, Patrick Kane is a guy who has had trouble off the ice in his career, but that is something that you saw in Mark Messier. And believe me, I don't think Patrick Kane is Mark Messier, especially from a leadership standpoint. 
But when you have a desire to win in New York, and a desire to leave to go win in New York, now it's a little different with Messier because obviously he won the Cup five times at Edmonton. And the team had won the Stanley Cup, I think. They were a year removed from their last title before he ended up with the Rangers. But that is a noble trait to want to win and to want to win in New York because you know how special it is. Messier probably values his sixth cup win as much as any of them in Edmonton because it was so significant and because of the drought. And so for Kane to be a Ranger, it is very interesting. And on top of that, he's going to be back with Artemi Panarin, who, if the Blackhawks had not traded Artemi Panarin, they might still be in the midst of their dynasty. I genuinely believe that. They... I mean, he had a dominant rookie year the year after they last won the Stanley Cup. And he was, I, I mean, he was a guy who could have extended that dynasty. So I never understood making that trade, never quite understood making that trade for Brandon Saad, who was a key role player for the Blackhawks for, their, for a couple of those cup-winning teams. But trading back for him and giving up Artemi Panarin made no sense. Panarin especially enhanced the creativity of Kane in a way that he never necessarily could with Taze. Taze is a, a much more workmanlike forward. He's a fine, he's a great player, but he is much more a two-way forward, not really skilled the way Panarin is necessarily. Doesn't mean Panarin's a better player. It just means more skilled, more offensive. And that's that's kind of Kane's game. So it's I mean it's gonna be fascinating now with a Ranger team that features Patrick Kane, Vladimir Tarasenko, in addition to Mika Zibanejad, Artemi Panarin, Adam Fox. It's funny that Chris Kreider is probably the one that's least mentioned out of that core when he's the guy who scored 50 goals last year, but it's true. And even some very... Uh, like Keandre Miller. I mean, the Rangers are a, a very dangerous team. That being said, I think the Maple Leafs, considering the trade for O'Reilly and, and their... I think what they've done the last couple of years with Matthews and, of course, getting Tavares, the Leafs might be the team that has more pressure. Well, actually, the Leafs probably are the team that has more pressure on them because of the drought, for one thing, and because the hockey media is as tough in Can as tough in Toronto as there as it is in anywhere other any other city, including New York. But there will be a lot of pressure on the Rangers now. Because you don't know if, if they are bringing either of these guys, whether Kane, whether it's Kane or Tarasenko, back. So there's a lot of pressure on the Rangers, and there's a lot of pressure on the Maple Leafs in particular. So the, the eyes of the world are watching. Speaking of the Rangers, it's funny to think, actually, that Jonathan Quick had been traded by the Kings along with a first-rounder and a third-rounder to Columbus for Vladislav Gavrikov and Jonas Corposalo. I think it's a pretty fair deal on both sides. But it's funny to think, actually, Jonathan Quick, who is from Connecticut, grew up a Ranger fan, and won the Stanley Cup against the Rangers his second time around, beat the Devils the first time. His last game, retrospectively speaking, his last game with the Kings was against the Rangers, and he was, and it was a lackluster performance at Madison Square Garden. Three goals allowed on seven shots before being pulled. So uh, quick, 
Quick's it was not a great finish, but Quick's career does come to an end in Los Angeles. Again, geographically, a nicer move for him in that he is from the East Coast, much like Kane. And Quick, in addition, I think two guys, I think they came up in the same year, as a matter of fact. I think they're both 07. But Quick will undoubtedly go down as the best goaltender in the history of the Kings and one of the best players in the history of the organization. A Conn Smythe winner back in 2012. Helped lead the team to cup titles in 2012 and 2014. Sandwiched in between three Blackhawks titles. Remember, it was it was a five-year stretch, or actually five out of six years, where it was Blackhawks, and then there was the Bruins. Kings, Blackhawks, Kings, Blackhawks. And those two teams were so dominant that it had a lot to do with Jonathan Quick, who was... Yeah, I, I could argue Jonathan Quick was the most important part of that team. Drew Doughty is high on that list. Andre Kopitar, even now, still very high on that list. But, yeah, I, I don't know if... Dustin Brown as well. But I don't know if anybody was more important to the Kings' success than Jonathan Quick was. Unfortunately for him, and for more sentimental Kings fans, that's not really the case now. The Kings are second in their division at this point. But, in terms of goaltending, that has more to do with Phoenix Copley. Quick had an 11-13-4 and record with the Kings this year and a 3.50 goals against a sub-900 save percentage. Copley has posted a 2.82 goals against and has certainly won more games. So it, it's a move that ultimately had to be made. The Kings do get a solid return. Corpusalo is a, a quality goaltender. Gavrikov, certainly a quality skater. And the, the Kings get picks. Or rather, the, the, the Blue Jackets get picks in addition to Quick. So, really, really interesting move. Columbus is not going anywhere. They are, I think, at, near the bottom, if not at the... Actually, yeah, I think they have the worst record in the, the NHL, actually, to this point. But we'll see what they do with Quick. We'll see what his future is. And we'll see what the future is for Gavrikov. Gavrikov, probably really the key piece for Columbus, for the Kings, actually. And Corpusalo, a guy who could be could be a starter, could be a backup, could be a platoon. Especially if and when the Kings reach the postseason. We saw last year the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup while platooning. And it worked. One last piece of transactional news, and that is that... The Red Wings have signed Dylan Larkin to an eight-year, $69.6 million extension. The Red Wing captain has 57 points in 59 games this season. He avoids free agency. He is only the fourth Red Wing captain since Steve Eisenman was named in 1986. Nicholas Lidstrom and Henrik Zetterberg, the only other two besides him. It's a ridiculous list. It's an exclusive list, and it shows how much faith they have in him, and how talented he is, how good a leader he is. Also locks him up. He's a Michigan native, by the way, so again, another no-brainer. Through age 34, not quite a point-per-game player, but undoubtedly the face of the organization, best player on the team, 169 goals, 246 assists, 415 points in 563 games, has not been very injury-prone over the course of his career, of his career in his eighth season. He has only played fewer than 
70 games once. And that was, I believe, last season. thought I saw. And so at age 26, he's still perhaps not even at his peak yet. So, that, I mean, they've gotten guys like Raymond and Sider. And, of course, they brought in Iserman as the GM. He's done a good job so, so far. He did an excellent job in Tampa. And this is a, a huge deal for Detroit. The league did have to take some disciplinary action this week. The Ranger defenseman Keandre Miller was suspended three games for spitting at Drew Doughty in the game against the Kings, the aforementioned game against the Kings. Miller claims he did not so did not do so intentionally and apologized to Doughty, who in turn forgave him. Now, now what's interesting is that I was watching this game, and when the officials said match penalty, and you kept seeing the review, I figured they were initially reviewing it. I figured they were reviewing, maybe he had hit, it didn't even seem like Dowdy, I figured maybe Fiala, because he was closer initially. He was maybe hitting, maybe he made head contact with Fiala, and that's why. But no, you never, certainly never expected spitting. It's not something that happens often, and rightfully it's something that doesn't happen often. Miller said it was accidental. I, I don't know, what, what the, the funny thing is, well, it's not funny, of course, but Miller said it was accidental. Dowdy forgave him for it, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was accidental. But when he was ejected for spinning, the first thing I thought was somebody must have said something to him. Not that it el- not that anything anyone could have said necessarily elicits that response, but or, or deserves that response, even if it's bad. But I was thinking because Miller, I think a couple of years ago, I think when he had been introduced by the team, there was a virtual fan event and someone had left a very racist comment up there. I don't even know. I don't even, I don't even know if I found out what it was or I certainly don't remember what it was, but that was a a horrible introduction for him to the organization, to the league. And I thought, Perhaps was it another racially motivated incident? Because even at the end of the game, if you watch the end of the game, the last couple of minutes, there are multiple times where they're chirping, the Rangers are chirping at, I thought initially it was at Fiala. I didn't know until after the game that it was at Dowdy. I thought that Fiala perhaps had said something, but apparently not so. And especially if, if Miller thought, if Miller says it was accidental and Dowdy forgives him for that, then... Nothing could have come of it, but it was hard for me not to speculate considering the past. Regardless, it is an unfortunate accident, and even if it is, well, it's an unfortunate incident. I mean, I I would hope it was an accident and that it was not intentional, but the league ultimately does suspend Miller three games. That's a huge loss. He's a very, he's an excellent two-way defenseman for the Rangers. Credit to Dowdy, a veteran, for forgiving him. This was, I believe, the first time Miller had to be had to be disciplined which is why I think it would make a lot more sense if it was accidental but regardless credit to to Dowdy for for accepting that apology whether you know even if you don't necessarily appreciate it it's still something that just had to be settled so we can consider it a 
a closed and settled situation. There was another suspension this week. Eric Chernak of the Lightning suspended two games for elbowing Kyle Ocposo of the Sabres. So I saw this one. I Here's the thing. It's difficult to determine really whether it was intentional with Miller because, I mean, spitting is something that is just penalized so rarely. I think it was something that happens so rarely, rarely spitting on an opposing player. And, I mean, you know, the league did get its due diligence by suspending him three games, especially because it is a rarity and it's such a disgusting act. Based on the video, I think it's kind of difficult to tell whether it was intentional or not. I mean, it, it looks like, you know, it, it, you could have let it go by accident. I don't know. This one is, you know, there's no in-between for this one. This one's clear. Eric Chernak just pretty much threw a flying elbow out of Poso as he's coming toward the blue line. Chernak comes to, from the, the, the camera side, comes to the near wall, just sticks that elbow out, does not attempt to play the puck whatsoever. It is Chernak's second suspension for his career, fined over $30,000. I think Miller was fined about fifteen. I think the, the salary factors into that, and I believe the amount of years played, and perhaps the fine history also factors into that as well. One piece of positive news before we leave the the NHL here. Lena Solmark of the Bruins, the odds-on favorite to win the Vezina Trophy this year, the league leader in wins, save percentage, and I believe goals against, at least among qualified goaltenders, becomes the 13th goaltender ever to score a goal in NHL history, doing so on the road against the Vancouver Canucks, shooting it pretty much the length of the ice, it was even more impressive because it was only a one-goal game, and he had a couple of Canucks players charging at him. He was like this. This shot could have been knocked down, albeit with a high stick, but it could have easily been knocked down by a Canucks player and and maybe put into the net. But this was a, a gutsy play by Olmark, and I think one of the coolest things out of one of the coolest things to come out of it was Olmark actually skated over to the bench to to tap gloves with everybody as a goal scorer would. It was a really, really cool moment. And something that is somehow more unique than the, the type of year that Olmark has had, having been, having once played in Buffalo and being kind of just kind of a backup and now being the guy for Boston and having a career year, an undoubted career year, being the likely Vezina winner for a team that will likely end up with a President's Trophy. And the last thing this week, some also really some unique news. Damian Lillard becoming just the eighth player in NBA history to score 70 or more points in a game. Doing so by hitting 13 three-pointers. Only seven other players scoring 70 points. And this is, this is pretty good company. Wilt Chamberlain, who did it six times. That shows how good Wilt Chamberlain is. Elgin Baylor. Devin Booker, Kobe Bryant, Donovan Mitchell, David Robinson, and David Thompson. Most of the guys on that list are in the Hall of Fame. The other two are fairly early on in their careers, but are on a good pace. And I mean that that's such a such an impressive list when you consider 
Michael Jordan. If you consider the guys who are not on that list, Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, LeBron James, Bill Russell. I know he's more of a defensive player, but Bill Russell, Shaquille O'Neal, Larry Bird, the, the insane Tim Duncan, the insane... The insanely good players, Steph Curry, Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, the insanely good players that are not on that list. It's it's something that, it's, it's perhaps the highlight of Lillard's career. A guy whose career has been unfortunately overshadowed by playing in a bit of a smaller market and being a guy who has not always had the best supporting cast, a guy who's never played in an NBA final, a guy who has not won an MVP, but has been maybe the best point guard of his generation, not named Steph Curry. Is that fair? I mean, it's a pretty, maybe Kyrie. I mean, it, he's, he's one of the best players in the history of the game. And he's, at this point, he might be the best player in the history of the organization. Because you have guys like, Bill Walton and Clyde Drexler, who were so crucial and did play in the finals or win a championship, win an MVP, but Damian Lillard has just been such a face for the organization. And this is this is the creme de la creme for him. Guy who, you know, I I, I guess didn't necessarily want out. Guy who opted to stay in Portland. And, and some guys have, you know, done it somewhat for selfish reasons, for, for legacy, but, you know, also for, for good reason to go out and try to try to be able to win in a somewhere else. And Lillard has put his faith in the Trailblazers. It's a very, very noble thing. This is this this is his crowning achievement, at least to this point. But it may end up being his crowning achievement in an already stellar career. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your time. Wishing you the very best. Here from Sports in the Waiting Room. <laughs>